0: Good morning, uh, dear God Firsters and guests with us this morning. It's lovely to see uh, new faces. Met Nicola among others this morning, which is absolutely lovely to have you with us. And um, my name's Christopher. I'm one of the leaders here at God First, and it truly is such a joy. The sun is shining, the birds are singing. I was uh, saying to Colton, it's almost kind of suns out, guns out weather, but not quite. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Don't be misunderstood. <laughs> But this morning, we are continuing our series uh, through the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at Acts 17 this morning. And it's Luke's account of Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Athens. One of the things that excites me about the Acts series is that over the last kind of year and a half, we've been spending a lot of time regathering the church, we've spent a lot of time being together, rebuilding community. Um, Being with Jesus, rebuilding and relaying discipleship practices, habits that are really the foundation of following Jesus. And for me, it's been feeling like we've increasingly been kind of as we've been with Jesus and as we've started becoming more like Jesus, it feels like there's a pulling back of a a bow. There's a tension that's starting to develop, a rousing godly appetite for the things of God to increasingly take shape in our lives. And the book of Acts feels like Partly, it's kind of a release of the bowstring in the early church. They'd been with Jesus, they became more like Jesus, and the book of Acts is the account of them doing the things that Jesus had done and told them to do, which is namely, go and make disciples of all the nations. And partly, our Acts series is intended to rouse our spirits and put fresh faith in us as we increasingly release this bowstring and continue to find our place in the mission, the big story of God. And we desire to increasingly be well-equipped to fulfill this mandate to go and make disciples of all the world and in our everyday lives and through our everyday lifestyles. And the, the chapel that we're very excited about will no doubt be a catalyst for a lot of the thinking and the processing that's going on in the church through this kind of process of the the, the tension of the bow being pulled back. And although buildings aren't missionaries, we know that people are missionaries. You, I, we are missionaries. Buildings are fantastic catalysts that that can kind of um, allow us to think very critically about our place in God's story and in His mission. Let me say maybe what you're all thinking at this point. It's easy to say we're all supposed to be missionaries. It's easy to say that we should all be fruitful, successful missionaries for Jesus. But it's really hard to be a missionary. It's really hard. We've tried things. You've tried to be a missionary. You've gotten out there. You've put yourself out. You've trusted God for breakthrough with people and with relationships. And often we come back disappointed. And the only easy thing about how easy it is, the only easy thing is about how easy it is to get discouraged in being a missionary. It's easy to become hard-hearted again and cynical about our place in God's story. And to rather than be front-footed missionaries filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and taking it into all the, the world, we, we can just drift onto the back foot. Dear friends, it is our prayer this morning that we would press the reset button. God would help us press the reset button in our hearts and allow us to lean forward again, lean in again with fresh faith and fresh expectation of what God is wanting to do in and through our lives. And we're going to ask of the Scriptures this morning and allow the story of Paul in in Acts 17 to teach us, give us some of the skills... Of being a missionary. Being willing to be used by God. Let me say that again. Being willing to be used by God. And putting our hand up and kind of stepping out. That's one half of the missionary equation. The other half is unsurprisingly knowledge and skill. And wisdom as a missionary. Does that make sense? We can trust on the supernatural sovereignty of God to get us so far and he expects and graces us with the ability to learn and grow and get better and sharpen and hone our skills that's our privilege I've said this before just say it again because I think it's true some of us will be called to make disciples and be missionaries in the nations but all of us are called to be missionaries to the neighbors. Wow, what a privilege. So we'll read Act 17 together, and we'll ask God to help us with that reset button, inspire us again, and to equip us in being thoughtful missionaries, which is a bit of a clunky title, but there it is, Being Thoughtful Missionaries. And if you're a guest with us this morning, you think, oh, what have I walked into? I'm so thrilled that you're here with us. You're welcome. Thank you that you're exploring churches. Come explore Jesus. Come explore God first. We do so firmly believe that being part of a local church is essential to the Christian life. And... We'd love you to find your place with us, but there are outstanding churches in this town. And if this is not a place where you can be home and find the family that, that kind of God is calling you to, please help us connect you in. Please just do connect somewhere. So God firsts and guests, let's turn to the scriptures. we in verse 13 of chapter 17. will be behind me as well. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast where Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens dot, dot, dot. I just want to pause there. First essential thing I'd like to highlight. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. See, there's no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. Which is one of the reasons I say to our guests, ah, connect in. Join us or join another great church. But connect. Because the Lone Ranger Christian just ain't a thing. If Even if you've chosen to live like that for a season of your life, you would know the the pain of that, the sting of that. And even if we've said things like, hey, you don't need to go to church to be a believer, which is probably true. You've most likely experienced the moments of pain and frustration and fruitlessness and a lack of growth in our Christian life that... Would have been helped by being part of a local church community. Most often, when uh, Christians choose to live outside of the broader context of community, they choose who they do life with, very carefully. And they choose a group which, to no surprise, is what? Like them is <laughs> like them. community is better because it helps us grow. Being part of a broad church community means you rub shoulders with people who are different than you. You serve in teams and are in G1Cs and in threes with people who are different to you. Different age, different phase of life, different passions, different personalities, different cultures, different languages, and different is, no surprise, harder. But I'll let you in on a little secret. That I've never grown significantly as a person or as a follower of Jesus when things have been easy. If life is easy right now, ding, 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 beware. You
1: join a small group. <laughs> yeah, join a small
0: group. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not in a group if life is easy. I've grown most, both in my understanding of who I am as a a person and as a follower of Jesus, when things are are awkward and uncomfortable and difficult. Because difficult means we need God's grace. We need to lean into His Spirit and His presence. And we need to lay down preferences that I might have. And I need to lay down my pride And say sorry and receive forgiveness. All very awkward things. Difficult needs more of God. And community is God's way to help us grow as people and disciples of Jesus. Community is God's way of keeping us healthy. You know, we all have little pet things that we chase after or or ways we like to do things. And naturally, as individuals, we're unbalanced. We all walk like this, okay? We all have some overemphasis in one area and an underemphasis in another area. And this imbalance, when it's left unchecked, is the thing that causes burnout, causes disillusionment. It causes lack of mental, spiritual, and physical well-being. Living in Christian community uniquely offers us A safe place to learn balance. Receive correction. Wow, we need that, don't we? Support, friendship, all the things that keeps us leaning into Jesus that brings us mental, spiritual, and physical health. And finally, I think most obviously out of the passage, for the same reason that we've just been saying, the importance of community... Is that community is God's best way to be a missionary and a disciple maker. In community, we bring multiple gifts, multiple uh, passions, multiple talents together. So that when one of us is out of our depth, the other one is there. More equipped and more confident to help us move forward. There's a lady in the church called, called Sarah, one of the Sarahs. And she loves speaking to people on the streets about Jesus and about their lives. And I think, I can think of nothing worse. Nothing more terrifying. But together with Sarah, and when I bring what I bring, who knows what that is, and together, actually, we can do way more than Sarah can or I can on our own. Additionally, being missionaries in community means that we can pray with a genuine understanding of what one another is going through and the support you need from God, the grace you need from God. And when things go badly or, or the fruit is just not falling off the tree we'd like, like we'd like it to do, we can encourage one another, lift one another up. And when persecution comes, and hard times come, as it surely will and does, particularly when you're out on the edge as a missionary, we can lean into the Spirit of God together. And we can remind one another of God's promises and His faithfulness. Because those promises get jaded when when things are hard. But together, hey, remember the promises of God. Remember His faithfulness and His goodness. And the other side of the coin is true as well. We keep one another humble and grounded in thanksgiving when things are going well. woo Community is both God's gift to us as missionaries and is the context to being thoughtful missionaries. Your friends, your family... Your neighbors, your work colleagues, your uni mates, your school friends are uniquely yours. They are uniquely yours. But as much as we'd like, we can't be all things to all men all the time, the way that Paul says. You can't love them and serve them and be salt and light and everything to them all the time, alone, alone. You'll burn up or you'll dry out. But when I've got my friends from my G1C or my three or church friends together, all of a sudden, when we start doing life together, our unique circle of people and relationships starts overlapping with their unique relationships. And all of a sudden... It's not just me and my people and you and your people together. Actually, we start seeing an exponential increase in the way that we can love and be a blessing to people around us. Bring to them the goodness and the love, the salvation in the grace of God towards them. That is our hearts. We want them to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, how about, as part of our reset button, we put away previous discouragements, previous hurts from trying and it just, just didn't work, and try again. If the people in your life who don't know the love of God have, have kind of faded onto the background, onto, onto the back foot of your life, let's pray again. Let's pray again. And ask God to reignite your love for them the way that He has a love for them. And then, how about next time you have those friends around for dinner. And you're thoughtfully trying to show them the love of God. Have a few of your G1C friends there as well. Or church friends. And tell your church friends. Bring them in on the journey. Say, I've been praying for my friend. So they know, they can be praying, they can be sensitive, they can be part of the story. And next time you're going for a walk up on Cleve Hill with your church friends after church or for G1C or whatever, go, uh, invite a friend to go along with you. All of a sudden these relationships start overlapping. And then when you invite them into your world and into a G1C meeting or on a Sunday, it's not weird. Oh yeah, I know Steve. I know Ian. I know them. Yeah. Nice to see you. Cool. Sit with me. Natural, light touch, fun, lovely. But the power and the presence of God affects lives. Even through this light, natural touch. It's the way. Every missional Endeavor of ours in the chapel will be done in community. It's not going to be Howard out there. Or me alone. No. In community. Every coffee morning. Every soup evening. Every outreach opportunity and initiative. With food. With prayer. With a blessing. Every toddler group. Every debt or bereavement or marriage counseling group that we'd like to get going. Everything. Everything. It's going to be done in community. Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy before he entered Athens as a missionary. He had to wait. I look around the room here and I think, what a privilege that I have to have my brothers and sisters with me right here in the room. And I'm so excited to use that grace gift of us together To go for it as missionaries together. Missionaries who carry the presence and the good news of Jesus wherever you go. How does that sound? Are you with me? So let's carry on now in our passage. And see what we can learn from Paul's actual words as we go forward. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The ESV says, His spirit was provoked within him. Very quickly, if you don't have a clue where to invest your time or your energy as a missionary, look at those words His spirit was provoked. Where, when you go about your daily life, your shopping, your friends at school with the kids. Whatever it is. Where is your spirit provoked within you? Something that brings sadness, emotion, happiness, injustice, rage, anger. Something. Right? That is that is the provocation of the spirit. And it's the thing that leads Paul... To go in the way he does. And it's the thing, that, the gift that God gives us. To give us an indicator where we should invest our time and our energy. Sound good? Yeah. So, verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. As well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group, a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. None of these things are bad. They're good. That's what the people of the time did. They were trying to engage with Paul's message. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, So we don't hear that specifically and explicitly said in Paul's words. But here clearly... That's what they have heard throughout Paul's time with them in Athens, right? He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Wonderful. Which is the central core message of everything we do. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Woohoo! Yeah, like social media. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things, everything else. For one man, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history. He knows the length of our days and the boundaries of their lands, where we will be. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. It's interesting. Mentioning the poet is Paul saying, guys, poets weren't just poets. We don't go, oh, lovely Wilfred Owen. These poets were philosophers. They were the deep thinkers of their day, and their words held massive value. In fact, one of these poets that he quotes was brought in at one point when there was a massive issue in one of the cities. And his thinking and his worship of the unknown gods specifically was the reason why the city was saved. What they believed, which is why these words are very telling. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver, a gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with. Justice by the man he has appointed, He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, "We want to hear you again on this subject." At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Hmm. You might be quite familiar with this passage. It's, uh, it's a lovely one. I think that phrase, I see you are very religious. Um, we use that a lot. We talk about that a lot. And I'm excited about how it's speaking to us uh, in the next week about more of these things, that we, these idols, these values that we hold on to, these gods that we create. But um, being thoughtful missionaries... There genuinely is a lot for us to learn here from Paul in Athens. And it's not only is it his desire to be a missionary in community, not only is he responding to the things that provoke his spirit, we see in here a very, very good example of Paul tailoring the way, nuancing the way that he presents the gospel and the truths of Jesus. And he tailors his words and uses them very specifically to these people in Athens. In Pisidian Antioch, we read in Acts 14, Paul went to the Jews and he reasoned from the scriptures. He tried to convince them out of the Old Testament that Jesus Christ was Lord and was Savior and was their promised Messiah. He then goes to Lystra and he uses a completely different tactic, strategy. In Lystra, Paul speaks to Gentiles. There aren't any Jews there to speak of. And these Gentiles have no knowledge of the Scriptures, so that is an unhelpful paradigm to use. So he goes to them and he says, he speaks to them about the Creator of all things, who gives them rain, who brings their crops up and allows them to feed their livestock so that they themselves can eat. That's how he speaks to them in Lystra. It's the same gospel, he's just trying a very different approach to get into the hearts and lives of the people. The gospel, the, the good news of, the, of Jesus, is a timeless gospel. It's a timeless message. It's a, it's a cultureless, a languageless message. But being thoughtful missionaries means, like Paul, we want to be presenting the gospel to a specific people at a specific time in history into a specific culture and context in a specific language that has loads of limitations and its own kind of phrases. And we call this process of thinking critically about how we're going to live and share the gospel contextualization. Contextualization. And Paul is contextualizing his presentation of the gospel here into a first century Greek-speaking, Greco-Roman, hyper-religious Athenian culture. Try to say that three times quickly. In Antioch, he had the scriptures. In Lystra, it was the rain. In Athens, what is it that he appeals to? Their intellect, their religion, their religiosity, is the thing he sort of taps into. Their religion, their, their religiosity, is the kind of cultural entry gate that he hinges his gospel presentation on. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, and I'm very excited about the talk of next week because. Where we're talking about the structure of how to approach contextualization, we're going to be talking about what it is that we're chasing in our cultures and help us approach that. Howard's going to do a great job with that. But for now, what's going through Paul's mind when he contextualizes like this? Well, Paul, being a thoughtful missionary, knows that every culture, at every time in history, in every language, in every context, has the same set of questions that they're trying to make sense of with their worldview. And they adjust their worldview to make sense of those questions. Paul, as this thoughtful missionary knows that it's the same set of questions everywhere, in every culture, in every language. And he sees it as his great privilege, as a missionary of Jesus, to inject into this culture in a sensitive, in a thoughtful, and a loving way, that Jesus is the alternative. But not only the alternative, the best answer to the set of questions that the culture is asking No doubt desiring to be thoughtful missionaries ourselves we're already asking the question well what are these set of questions Up I'll get to it what are these questions that every culture is asking and tries to make sense of and you'll read them and you'll go uh-huh there's no rocket science here it's that simple number 1 how are things supposed to be? How is the world supposed to be? Secondly, what has gone wrong? And thirdly, what is the solution? Now you think, yeah, that's not difficult. But that is the set of questions every culture is answering when they are creating their worldview to make sense of these questions. I'd love to take a moment to make this practical for us and allowing us to just start thinking critically about our own world and our culture, please take one minute, literally 60 seconds, turn to your neighbor and take one of those hot button kind of cultural topics um, climate change, gender inequality, religious tolerance, capitalism, democracy, whatever one you want to just pick up on, and run it through that grid of those three questions. And how does that thing try and make sense of the world? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah? I mean, just give it a bash and we'll see what pops out. Okay, you've got 60 seconds. Please turn to someone. What a moment to get to know someone if you don't know them sitting next to you. Great. Was that fun? <laughs> so as you played the game, you might already start realizing a couple of things. Firstly, none of these is the dominant cultural worldview everywhere. There are subgroups in every culture that hold one of these things higher than the others. And each one of these major issues has a different set of idols, different set of values that they hold as ultimate. Think of the climate folks versus capitalists, okay? Is it wrong versus right? No. It's two worldviews, two sets of major values that are in conflict at times. Not all the time, at times. But you can see where it gets even within our time, in our culture, right here in Cheltenham and Gloucester and Gloucestershire. Right here, it's complex and muddy, and there's a whole host of things all on the go at one time. No one approach will be successful at fully presenting the person and the work of Jesus as a better alternative solution within their unique culture and worldview. There's no one exact blueprint that we can just roll out across England to say, this is how you present the gospel, da, 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 and there you have it. No. In Athens, Paul answers those three questions something like this. And I'm paraphrasing as we go. To question number one it is good to be religious. And there is one God that you've already become vaguely aware of. That is the God to be worshipped. And the purpose of life, the way things ought to be, is that you need to get to know Him, and you need to worship Him as the one true God. And through that, you will find life and joy in all things. His answer to the second question that the culture is asking, what's the problem? The problem is you are proud. Proud of your nationality as Greeks and proud of your hard work, proud of your handiwork. Your self-sufficient pride is your downfall. You sit and theorize all day long. You build temples and try and appease your gods with sacrifice and feasts as if in that there is going to be life for you. But the Lord of heaven and earth doesn't live in temples made by human hands, nor does He need sacrifices and human effort to please Him. None of your Greek philosophy, national pride, multiple temples, and hard work is going to save you. God has appointed a day of judgment that will come through this man, Jesus, that God has vindicated, has authorized By raising him from the dead. And because of your pride and ignorance, you are currently falling on the wrong side of judgment. What's the solution? Point three. Because your own poets have rightly assessed that we are his offspring. And that in him you live and move and have your being. We can recognize that it is God's desire to make himself known to you. God's grace has been at work throughout history and to you, giving people time and opportunity to recognize Him as God and to follow Him, to seek Him, to reach out for Him, and to find Him. Because unlike these dead statues and temples, He is not far from any one of us. Turn away now from your ignorance and your self-sufficiency. Repent and follow the one true God. And Jesus, His once dead and now resurrected Son. This is proof that this God is real. His grace is sufficient to put you on the right side of the coming judgment. And offer true life now and forevermore. Now, how does that sound to you? I I like it. I don't think it's that far from the gospel message that we know, love, and preach today. And from that, I think we can learn that contextualization is not compromise. Okay, we don't compromise the gospel, we don't soften the things the critical things especially that we're afraid will offend. We're happy to not put hurdles in front of people that are unnecessary essentials of the gospel, but the essential things we hold on to, just like Paul in this culture. And I want to highlight a a final passage. We read, (laughs) some of the people believed. You'd think that after this amazing display of contextualization by the master apostle Paul, and this presentation of the gospel as a thoughtful missionary, that the whole city would somehow fall to their knees and cry out, how can we be saved, Paul? Nah. And some believed. (laughs) Dear fellow thoughtful missionaries, Our deepest joy in life must not be found in the success of our mission. Pride or despair will follow us if we do. It is our privilege to be co-laboring with God, who through the Holy Spirit is at work in all the people that we know and love, that we can be thinking about right now. To bring them to a saving knowledge of the truth that the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ truly is Lord and Savior and worthy of all, all of our lives. Our deepest joy in life must be found in Jesus himself, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one who dictates the length of our days and where we shall live and who does not require sacrifices, but in fact offers us the most precious of gifts, himself. We give ourselves to the mission of Jesus because we first and most importantly find ourselves on the receiving end of his mission to us. His love toward us, his gospel message toward us, and that we now find ourselves in him. The one who made himself known to us that we might seek him and reach out and find him as the only true life giver. We're going to be breaking bread now shortly. I'd love to ask the team to come up and help us. When we break bread and drink the juice together, his body given for us, and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins promise of a new relational covenant context between us and God the context of faith context of grace his mercy he became the ultimate contextualizer paul says imitate me as i imitate christ well paul the great contextualizer was imitating jesus who came down, became one of us, became like us. He spoke our languages. He lived as we did, struggled as we struggled, yet remained sinless and pure. And dying on the cross, a sinner's death on our behalf, and being resurrected by God the Father, demonstrating that there is hope for us, that our missional endeavors are not empty and aren't fruitless, useless. The solution to the question, how do we fix what is broken in our world, is found in Him, in Him alone. We can be part of the story, but He is the answer.